Bayern. Bayern. We're all bad here on Fashion by Dad. Well, we're all sinners. Some of us have committed fashion crimes, others have only sinned in our minds. Yes, we are perched on the edge. And for the next hour, your Dash and Dadder is joined by Guy Lane of Vita. Vita is a new religion, a religion without a deity. Welcome, Guy. Hello, how are you going there? Now, Guy, you've just uh, brought in a little pocketbook called Vita Awakening. Yes. So uh, that's introducing the, um, you're calling it the Rethinking Our Place on Earth. Do you want to just introduce that to the Uh, listener? So um, uh, the Vita Awakening uh, is a concept of uh, helping people to uh, develop a spiritual affiliation with uh, nature and the living planet. And this little book... Uh, tries to do two things, uh, synergizing two things together. One of which is some environmental education around explaining how uh, the greenhouse effects works and how that's uh, concerning for climate change. Yeah, about the first half of the book is really a very straightforward uh, introduction to the idea of gas (coughs) molecules and Brownian motion and (coughs) all of those things we learnt in high school Forgot, forgot from high school. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think a lot of people just, you know, tune out when it comes to molecules, atoms, chemistry. I think a lot of people, when they talk about climate change, they get really stuck on climate change because they don't necessarily understand the very basics about air molecules, for example. So I've just tried to approach the subject by stepping from the very, very beginnings all the way through. In the space of 20 pages on a small book, it's only about 40 minutes or 30 minutes to read up to this point. But what it segues into is really (coughs) an explanation of how our planet is collapsing, our ecosystem is collapsing through human action and fundamentally due to Western people having a being disconnected spiritually from nature. That's fundamental driver, the way we see it. Mm. So is that a bit like the creation story in a sense, you know, um, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and on the first day he created light? And yeah, well, so all, all spiritual philosophies seek to answer those big questions, right? So this is about the big questions of where do we come from and why are we here and what happens when we die? And if you look at the way that spiritual philosophies practised in the West answer those questions i mean they give answers but they're not particularly helpful answers in the face of the ecosystem collapsing around us and so what we've tried to do with vida is to sort of approach those big questions of where do we come from and why are we here and what happens when we die uh, from the perspective of humans as a part of nature i mean we we've got as much right to be on this planet as the trees and the bees and the whales and the snails. We came from the same place. So if you ask, why are we here? You might ask, why are they they here? And we're here for the same reason, which is to positively contribute to the the ecosystem that acts as our life support system. Um, So why do we need a, a framework to see that? I mean, someone who did remember their high school science or someone who simply watches the world catching fire and the thousand-year flood sweeping German towns into the Rhine or whichever river it was that, you know, flooded recently, gets that aha moment, oh, dear, oh, dear, the poo has hit the fan, we better do something. Mm. So, Mm. um, you know, there is a, 
a reason-based scientific framework that allows us to mm. uh, encourage each other to take action. Why mm. are you focused on the spiritual approach? Well, fundamentally, um, the destruction of the ecosystem can't just be seen as a scientific phenomena or an economic problem or a, a, a political problem. It's a, it's a profoundly spiritual um, uh, thing that we're doing. You can't look at the destruction of, 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 of effectively Mother Nature that birthed us, that provides us with the, with the oxygen and the, and, the, and the rainwater and the food that we need. You cannot see the destruction of that by human actions outside of uh, it being a, a profound spiritual uh, phenomenon. And we don't tend to think of it spiritually. We tend to think of it rationally. We think of it, um, you know, in terms of science, in terms of politics, economics, technology. And what I'm saying is that when we start to address collapse and what we're doing to this planet spiritually, I think it opens up a door, a pathway to really powerful human action to actually turn things around. Mm. And I mean, you're not the only person to think that. I snipped a section out of a recent... uh, um, session about science, you know, technology and um, the future with Helen Norborg, Hodge, uh, Ananda Shiva, mm-hmm. um, you know, quite a range of people discussing the role of science, and it it became very very passionate. It was extraordinary. So. Um, you know, it it almost became a schism between people who thought we needed to be spiritually connected to the earth and people who thought we uh, adopt faith-based approaches at the cost of reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was a most extraordinary argument. I've sort of synthesised it down to about a five-minute mm-hmm. edit of it, which I'm, I might try and find during this hour because mm-hmm. it's really it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So when I hear that kind of passionate argument and inability to communicate between people who clearly care and... Uh, you know, highly conscious, it makes me makes me want to ask you, you know, very deeply why you think that it's a spiritual response that's required. Uh, well, if 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 uh, only for the fact that it doesn't seem to have been actually deployed up to this point, and if you look at the scale and the speed of the ecological collapse that's taking place around us. Um, and you draw the analogy to a war. This is like total war that we are have engaged against the planet, and we need to deploy every weapon system, using the war analogy, at our disposal to f- to fight, to change human behaviour, to fix the problem. And spirituality is one of the most powerful drivers of human action. And it's, broadly speaking, it's completely ignored in the environmental movement. Oh, absolutely. There's an anathema to it. When, mm. you know, when we first spoke about this three or four years ago, I was still very active in the Greens and I was expressing similar views mm-hmm. to that, that unless we have a spiritual dimension to this, we're yep. not going to carry people yep. Yep. forward. And, uh, you know, 
as a evidence-based, rational, political organisation <laughs> that was hey, like, you know, <laughs> saying, I've just done a deal with the devil and I want us all to march sideways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, uh, when uh, there's there's a relatively low level of spiritual literacy in the West. And when I what I mean by that is that people, generally speaking, aren't very good at talking about spirituality because they don't fundamentally understand the subject of spirituality and so part of my training in putting Vita together is to sort of get my head around the terminology and what you know spirituality can be understood as and um, and one of the the other factors is that Western people tend to conflate spirituality with uh, as being anti-science as though there is this thing called the pragmatic reality that we live in and then there is the spirituality whereas what I'm saying is that your spirituality can be grounded in fact your spirituality ought to be grounded in reality okay so for example if you were to answer the big question as vita answers the big questions where do we come from well that's a question you'd ask a cosmologist the people that know about the big bang and the expansion of the universe and on four triple z you are with me jeff ebbs in fashion by dad uh, we're joined in this episode by guy lane the author of vita awakening and uh, founder of the uh, Gaia-based religion. Is that a fair description? I, uh, the term I use is um, uh, spiritual philosophy. So I uh, approach this uh, with a model called Blue Ocean Strategy, which is where you look at something like religion and you take away all of the, the nasty bits that people don't like, the dogma and all of the, uh, uh, the, the observance of specific practices. And you take all of that away and what you're left with is something quite unique, which is the spiritual philosophy. And that's what I refer to as Vita as. So. Uh, nevertheless, you have applied for official recognition as a religion. Uh, no, indeed, not only have applied, but uh, 18 months ago we got uh, the paperwork through. So we have a registered religious institution, and it was simply the best vehicle that we could find for what we were doing, although we framed this as a spiritual philosophy. Okay. Yeah. We'll come back and talk about the institution in mm -hmm. another conversation, but I wanted to pick up on the point you made in uh, our previous chat where you said that uh, spirituality should be founded in reality. In uh, Vita Awakening, you write, um, you're talking about people being disconnected from their spirituality and thinking that it's something else, mm -hmm. or something other. Instead, spirituality resides within the human central nervous system and is shaped by the senses and by ideas and experiences. It is understandable. Mm. Please explain. Yeah, so um, so a lot of people talk about spirituality, and they and they get and they go into this faith, this thing called woo woo, right? Woo woo is like, you know, like oh, you know, spirituality is like it's not something. It's like it disappears if you if you try to analyze it or if you try to define it. That's that's part of the you're talking to a lot of people that call themselves spiritual in Western in the Western world. Uh, you find that this is sort of abstractness. Whereas what I'm saying is this thing can be understood and it, and it doesn't collapse it or make it less valuable just because it can okay, be understood. Okay, so help me, help me understand it. No, <clears> no, no. Well, one thing in my studies, and I've studied this at master's level uh, uh, recently through a program, um, was when you start collecting all of the science papers on spirituality, you'll find that there's no commonly agreed to definition. And so the definition of somebody that's approaching spirituality from the religious perspective will be different from somebody who's approaching it from a uh, psychological perspective. Um, so what I've sort of tried to do is I sort of regard it as more as an umbrella concept. Uh, and there are core, five core themes 
that I've drawn out um, for Vita to help people get their head around it. Um, and this is on page 70. And they, um, oh yeah, okay, I'm on yeah. page 48. Yeah, so I okay, so, so to it. list them, so th- basically if, we, if you focus on these five core themes, it gives you enough of what spirituality is that it's a useful, meaningful term that you can work with. This is not the, the total, this is not the absolute truth where all the others are wrong, it's simply a frame of reference for spirituality that helps people get their head around it. So fundamentally the five core themes are a golden rule, so an overarching you know, uh, 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 idea with uh, under which one lives one's life. So, it's, in Christianity, that is do unto others as you would have well, them do unto. Well, in you. fact, in most of the world's religions, it is that as well. Okay, so that. So, that, how would you express that in Vita? Well, um, everyone simply just missed the planet, so you put the planet into it. So, do unto others and the planet as you do unto you, unto unto. Okay, so yeah. the context is the planet. Uh, well, do unto others and the planet. Right? Mm. So you just add the planet in. Um, and then that becomes a frame of reference that, you know, that you can see your actions, you know, do you really want to be doing that to the planet? Because, or, you know, because if you do that to the planet, the planet's going to do that back to you, you know. Okay, next. Yep. Um, um, so the, the next one would be uh, life's big questions. So we've addressed the first one. So, uh, you know, uh, where do we come from? Talk to the cosmologists about the Big Bang. Talk about abiogenesis and the formation of life from the uh, minerals you know naturally occurring process and then the big question of course what happens when we die it's simply answered but what happens to uh, the trees and the bees and the whales and the snails they get recycled back into the the biosphere right mm. um, we're all made of stars yeah and then uh, another concept called peak experience is um, fundamental uh, in in spirituality studies and this comes down to those sort of moments for, you know to give an example if you see a moonrise over a lake and you have that sense of elation and you have uh, what's referred to as timelessness and flow you lose track of your normal senses so these are key core concepts um, uh, the inner self, uh, which looks at our individual personalities um, <clears throat> and our choices of music and so forth. Um, but also uh, within the inner self, I refer to uh, what's called ecological self, which is the concept of seeing ourselves as a part of nature, of which we are. The question is whether or not we have a heightened sense of that. And then the concept called self-actualization, which is really uh, the way that I use that term is to sort of describe the way that we can actually modify our inner selves um, uh, in light of changes in the environment, it's sort of like an internal uh, evolutionary process. Now, as I listen to you talk, I think about your comment that the West has a warped view of spirituality. <clears throat> and one of the things that is very different about the Western view of spirituality and many other cultures is that we see it in terms of ourself. And a lot of the mm. terms that you've just used mm. are about ourself, you know, mm. our mm. heightened awareness or mm-hmm. the impact that it has on us. Mm. So surely if the role of spirituality is to connect us in a to the planet or to nature in a way that prevents us from harming mm-hmm. that environment which nurtures us, we need some kind of trigger to take us out of ourselves or be able to see outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. How does that relate to those Well, that comes back to that about? concept of, of the um, uh, ecological self, which is a term that I've poached from a, um, a Norwegian philosopher called Arne Naeus, 
who wrote about this back in the 70s, uh, part of the deep ecology movement, which is seeing mm -hmm. uh, where people see themselves as, an in, as a component of the ecosystem, as opposed to the way that we have been framed um, largely through Christianity um, as separate from the ecosystem. You know, the, some outside force created an ecosystem and that outside force also created humanity, right? Whereas in reality... Well, you blame Christianity, I blame the Greeks, but anyway, we'll... Well, I remember the Greeks uh, actually did have a goddess of Earth, so Gaia, was a Greek goddess. Mm. So, um, uh, the, the final one on the list here, though, back to the five, uh, is sacred values. Um, and this is important things. So, and I think this is a really important thing for environment movement. When... When I go and attend these street protests, as I do occasionally, and you know, and I'm angry at the government, I'm angry at the government for trampling on my sacred values. And one of my sacred values is a biosphere that has integrity, the integrity of the biosphere. Uh, one of the sacred values that I hold is that the atmosphere atmosphere shouldn't have 416 parts per million CO2 in it. And so, and so, I frame these things spiritually. Whereas I think that most people that attend environmental protests, environmental activists, frame them very rationally, even though I think they are actually motivated spiritually, they just don't know the language. And again, this comes back to this idea of spiritual literacy, and this is why I've tried to make this idea of spirituality approachable by breaking it down into these five themes. And so what's the advantage of being able to frame them spiritually? Why, why shouldn't we just frame them rationally? Well, uh, like I mentioned before, we're in a we're in a war of survival. We've got to try every try every tool, and this hasn't been properly tried. And secondly, if you observe um, uh, masters of fostering spirituality change, they bring about the most profound radical behavioural change. And I'll give you a, an extreme example, just to go way to the extreme. Um, I study uh, the work of a, a sociologist called Scott Atron, who visits the front lines of these internecine conflicts in the Middle East, and he gets inside the heads of these fighters and some of these, and he and he does a lot of work with ISIS, right? Now ISIS recruits people online, and then after a certain amount of time with the handler talking to these young kids, so like twenty-year-old kids that just want to play football, not interested in politics or religion, typically don't know much about the the Quran, right? And they are recruited online, and then maybe they send a bus fare, they go to a camp, and after three months they come out, and these guys are ferocious fighters for the caliphate, strapped in explosives, who will readily die to protect their newly found sacred value of protecting the caliphate. That is a, that is a profound behavioural change that is fostered not by appealing to their rational minds, but appealing spirituality to spirituality, appealing to their ideas about where they fit into this timeline of where did we come from and what happens when we die. The same thing happens to a lesser extent in, um, you know, in the streets around us uh, with Pentecostal Christians. You know, they'll say, oh, did you know that Jesus loves you? No, oh, shouldn't have said that. You know, three months later, you're handing over 10% of your pre-tax, you're attending church three times a day, you're reading the Bible, you're profound behavioral changes by appealing to spirituality. Now, Greenpeace doesn't do that, okay? Greenpeace doesn't appeal to spirituality. It appeals to our rational minds that, you know, save the whale because of this, protect the forest because of that. It's very rational. So what I'm trying to say is that if we start to appeal environmentally to people's spirituality, I think there's a possibility that we can actually foster 
the radical behavioural change in people that the environmental movement has been desperate to try and get. Okay, there's quite a few things to <coughs> unpack in that. Um, one which I'm going to put to the side is that you've almost presented it as a marketing technique, which is not what I think you mean. Um, the one that I want to pick up first, though, is that you've used war analogies quite a lot. Mm. And obviously in a time of great uh, military conflict, war is going to be on our minds. But surely it's really important if we're trying to frame mindsets and create, you know, deep behavioural change, we need to be very, very careful about the language we, and the analogies yep. that yep. we use. Yep. And I wonder about the wisdom of yep. um, putting spirituality on a war footing. Uh, no, and that's, that's a fair call. And the reason why I tend back, when I tend towards that trope a lot is because it's actually really easy to get your head around that analogy. It's a mm. very good analogy. It's not good in as much as we want to be, you know, I mean, I'm pacifist, I'm not interested, I think war is atrocious, but it's, uh, it's easy to describe because then you can use the terms like weapon and winning and armies and battles. So it's a good frame of reference in terms of its, uh, yeah, how you can use it. And mm. I totally take your point. And if I can find a pacifist better version, version. Yep. I'll flip to that straight All right. Away. Well, that can be a, a little challenge. I'm just a hairy man in a waxed world. And we're all hairy here at 10 past three on 4ZZZ in Fashion by Dad. I'm with uh, Guy Lane and we've been talking about spirituality, science and so on. I just want to play a little piece from the Science and Localisation uh, conference. So there was World Localisation Day, it ran for a week, um, and the one of the final sessions was called Finding the Way Home. So the discussion was ostensibly about what home means and how we find our way home, how we have a, a connection to place. Uh, the speakers that you're about to hear are Ellen Noah Bancroft from Northern New South Wales, Stephen Harding from the Schumacher College in England, and Manish Jain from the Learning Society's Unconference, uh, with Helena Norberg Hodge in the chair. Imagine we're, and you hear this concept Gaia, you know, which come from science. And you hear, hey, it's about the relationships between all the living organisms and the rocks and the atmosphere and the water and how the whole planet is one gigantic organism, one great living being. This has come from our science. There's nothing... I'd also argue it's come from psychedelics. I would well, also yeah. say the embodied form of what you're talking about is also deep ceremony, trance-like state, psychedelic, astral, um, astral plane projecting. I think there are different ways. I think I agree with what you're saying, but again, it's it's looking at it in a um, it, it's a way that we can comprehend it by the mind. I yeah. actually think if we examine indigenous worldviews we will uh -huh. find the equivalent of Gaia. In other words, we'll find that most of them understood the inextricable oneness of life. And certainly, yeah. you know, if you go back to Taoism, and if you look at Buddhism, there, there are different words. A, but essentially, life is one. All of life is one was a, a teaching of most of those cultures. Yeah, I'm not saying it's the only way to describe <laughs> it. If, if we dis disregard that aspect of ourselves 
which we've cultivated so much in the West, which we call science, and not the way we do science now. We are going to, we won't be whole. We've got to, it's, it's got to be part of it. And there's nothing, you see, it just makes your, your, um, your experience even deeper. Well, I'd like to hear what my niece, my niece, what yeah. you have to would, say. So what concerns me is not science, but the dogma of science, the global dogma of science. Of course, where, of course, yeah. And I think that, you know, I would, you know, one thing I, sh you know, and try to share with different learners in our ecosystems is, you know, uh, a deep humility that needs to be there. And one of the ways is that is, you know, I, I try to share some of the greatest blunders of science, you know, like, and, and really saying that science can like the, like the nuclear bomb, for example, That's really good, yeah. and, uh, and, and Einstein being the only, you know, one of the only scientists to apologize that we made a great blunder here. I think that, you know, these, these kinds of things need to be much openly, more openly discussed. And also how science has become very fragmented and people get hyper-specialized in their mode without, when lose the big picture, they wouldn't, very few scientists would be joining a conversation on big picture activism, for right, example. Right. But that's not um, science. I mean, sci yeah, I understand. I'm with you, man. Well, that's, that's the but thing. What science... I'm saying is that that needs to be cleaned up because that's all masking itself as part of the scientific dogma. Okay. And the third thing I just want to say, the link of science to global capitalism now Really, it has become a vehicle of global capitalism. And we need to, again, if you want to keep promoting science and defend it, Stefan, what I would say that we need to clean up these things. Because wait, if of you course keep we do. Wait, 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 wait. I like Can to you... see Stefan is, getting, is ready to jump out of his chair. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. oh, no, I'm with you. Well, let me just let me respond briefly. Yeah, I'm with you, yeah. Manish, of course. Yeah. I'm talking, but what is science? Science is sitting with a leaf and wondering, where did you come from? What made you? It's asking those very deep questions of a leaf. And when you do that with the deepest sincerity, deep, what do you find? There are chloroplasts, there are cells. Those chloroplasts were once free-living bacteria, 3,500 million years. Wait a minute. I'm discovering deep time here. Just by sitting with a leaf, I'm discovering deep time. And you can feel the level of connection that's that's, that's possible with this. And I think I we think, need to use yeah. science. That's science. That, yeah. that for me is science. But I also okay. would argue that perhaps science is a little bit behind the times and that actually most scientific knowledge that is coming out, Indigenous people have known just through basically living. You know, it's different to look at a cell and intervene it with medical um, intervention than to see that leaf dancing on the tree and know it is alive because you are seeing and witnessing it through oneness which is something that we're also limited to you know if you know and about neural pathways and the concept of what we're using our brains for in this mod modern world we we, we don't even comprehend a fraction of the way that we used to think as human beings because part of our our lights are turned off in our brain and that part is the part that connects us so deeply to the natural world and the one that makes us want to observe it and find the answers to it and not just be in it and accept it no, I, I think also the, i think this one thing i think we also have to stefan look at when monsanto invests billions to create mm. genetic engineering 
this is not a nice little man sitting contemplating a leaf and getting close to it. It's it's the See, what, what you're pointing to. You're yeah. all pointing to the shadow. You're pointing to the shadow of science. You're right. Science has a big shadow. I'm sure localization could have a big shadow too, if you're not careful. You know, we could start killing other communities yeah, over there. We really, Henry, I don't see many. Yeah, there's a shadow in everything, and I think you're pointing to the shadow of science quite rightly, but you're missing what it has to contribute. It's very interesting. You know, I'm a localizer like you, but I do feel a strong anti-science, which is understandable. But I, somehow I'm I must defend science in, in what it can really offer us. You know, otherwise I don't. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not anti-science. I just think it's time for science to sit down and be quiet for a little while. You know, like that science has spoken a little bit too much, and now it's time for perhaps not science to talk and for something else to lead our culture. Yeah, no, I agree. But science, you see, that's like excluding a child from from the conversation if you exclude science. Science as a child needs to be there. I don't think I don't think that's what we're saying, Stefan. I think uh, oh, it's going oh, a good. bit extreme, good. but uh, I think the point is that this Stefan was basically talking about wisdom and philosophy, and I think the idea, the need is now to reclaim that within those traditions within science and re-highlight those, and that these kinds of conversations might be very integral to that. You are on Fashion by Dad with me, Jeff Ebbs. I'm joined by Guy Lane of Vita. And we just heard uh, Eleanor Bancroft and Stephen Harding going hammer and tongs with uh, Helena Norberg Hodge in the chair, unsuccessfully keeping them apart. But not much blood was spilt in the recording of that uh, conversation. So, uh, Guy, is it time for science to sit down and shut up, as uh, Ella Noah Bancroft suggests? Um, <clears throat> no, I don't think so. I think, I think part of the problem is that typically uh, in the West people regard spirituality as being something that is innately anti-science, that there is a spiritual view of the world and then there is, independent of that, is a scientific view of the world. I just don't think that's very helpful and I think it's um, artificial. I don't think it actually makes any sense if you were to use the example of the worldview of the indigenous people, as as the woman was saying. Um, you know, uh, the Aboriginal people in Australia shaped um, boomerangs and they, they shaped boomerangs based on, 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 on reality uh, uh, and the physics of, you know, and trial mm, you know, the airplane the, wing the, and the boomerang yeah, have exactly so there, the same there is, there is a, leading a, edge and trailing edge yeah and, exactly now they didn't they didn't do it with supercomputers they didn't they didn't develop the aerodynamics of the boomerang using the same tools that we do to these days for aircraft but they nonetheless practiced a form of a form of science there's no there's no separation these are all different wisdoms right spirituality ultimately comes down to beliefs and you can have beliefs that are grounded in truths or you can have beliefs that are grounded in abstracts like the flying spaghetti monster, for example. Okay, so just because something is grounded in belief, it doesn't mean to say it shouldn't be anchored to reality. 
I think that's very important. But isn't isn't um, isn't a belief something that you uh, will defend against the evidence? Um, well, it certainly can be. I mean, I mean that, and that's the thing is that uh, belief doesn't need evidence, right? So if somebody holds a particular belief and somebody comes along and says evidence that runs counter to it, um, then because it's a belief, you know, you know, you can disregard the evidence. Huh? And because so, isn't that the problem? Is that why? rational people like Dawkins for example write books like The God Delusion mm. because they are concerned that belief denies or doesn't allow evidence into the well, frame I, 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 the, the, I come back to the, the church of the flying spaghetti monster again I, I, like, I really like using that as an analogy this is the idea that the world was created by a bowl of pasta with meatballs in it called the flying spaghetti monster. They refer to it by the non-gendered pronoun of quab. And if ever you see uh, a rope hanging off a fence, you go, oh, quab, I've, I've detected, you know, quab has spoken to me. I've been touched by his noodly mm. appendage. And I mean, now, there are people in Brisbane who've been married under the religion yeah, of okay, the flying my, spaghetti my, monster. The point that I'm making is that um, you don't, there doesn't have to be a flying spaghetti monster for you to have a belief in it, right? There doesn't have to be a pink teapot floating in the atmosphere for you to believe in it. The trouble is when you believe in things that have got no tangible reality, uh, you kind of a little, you can be, you can get lost easily, right? Whereas if you so so why beliefs, so so why talk about belief? Why include belief as part of the framing? Well, because I believe that all all of spirituality falls within the realm of belief. So so the so your your um, uh, the 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 uh, the golden rule that you follow is something that you believe is the best golden rule, right? You don't have factual evidence for that. And also we're starting to actually now go into this sort of semantics of the distinction between, um, you know, knowledge and belief. And mm, but I'm not worried thing. about the semantics. I'm not trying to uh, fine-pick knowledge. What I'm concerned about is that you have detected, like many of us have detected, that we are not going to win the climate change debate, shift the population towards nurturing biodiversity at the expense of, as ScoMo would have it, their weekend in the four-wheel drive. Mm. Um, we're not going to do that rationally. So we have to appeal to people's belief systems. Mm. And so... Yeah. That's the motivation. Yeah. The concern, the, the the problem whenever I've tried to have these discussions with rational people who come from that evidence-based scientific background is that they will not buy into a belief-based system because they are concerned that as soon as we accept belief as a cause for action we throw away our capacity to respond to evidence yeah 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 so so vita's vita's belief is that the best way to answer where we came from is to talk to the cosmologists and the biologists and so it's a belief that's grounded in science okay and so i guess what i'm saying is that you know you can believe something which is totally abstract like god or the flying spaghetti monster or you can believe uh, in something that is grounded in physical realities, right? And there's a choice there, and I think that there's a there's a there's, a, there's different outcomes uh, depending on how you mm. how you pass. Okay, so to go any further into that question does become semantic. semantic yeah. a, another way that I would uh, look at it is that when you join 
a 12-step program like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, one of the steps is to acknowledge a higher power. A higher power. Yeah. Now, I've spoken to many adventurers who've, you know, walked mountain ranges or spent months in the Antarctic and so on, who almost um, all of them say that their experience of being in awe of the world has changed their position on many, many issues. And so they recognise the earth as a higher power mm -hmm. and they do that without giving up their rationality mm -hmm. and so yeah, to yeah, me yeah, yeah, yeah. in that story in talking to them yeah. i connect belief spirituality or whatever yeah, yeah. with experience without yeah. giving up rationality yeah yeah but I'm not sure how one does that in terms of putting together a pocketbook like vita awakening mm -hmm. because i haven't managed to express what shines out of them when they talk about meeting a bear in the forest and mm. Mm. having to work out how to survive when there's an animal that could kill them with one blow mm -hmm. that's starting to lick its <laughs> lip it looks like it yeah. is thinking about breakfast yeah, 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 you know yeah. they, they felt an awe running through them and when they talk to me about it, my hair stands on end you know i can feel start to feel my bowels boil as mm. theirs must have been on the day on the mountain yeah yeah so we need awe. We need uh, we need to be in awe, and so to worship in that peak sense experience. a higher power, peak experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think it's and so it easy to fall back into that argument that we just heard those people having at the um, yeah. Well, world you've got people that talk about spirituality and people talk about science, and as if there's some sort of a battle between the two. Where in reality, it's I think it's. I was uh, sitting in front of the TV a few weeks ago and uh, and I had one of those moments of just like absolute awe just from glancing up at the TV and there was a underwater photography of the guy putting a probe into this huge sea sponge on the seafloor and then pulled some of this material out and now doing PCR, polymerase chain reaction uh, and and looking at the genetic the genetics of the sea sponge and mapping out where back in time billions of years ago there was a common ancestor between the humans and the sea sponges and i was just i was just totally awestruck not only by nature right but the science which was a tool by which we can actually understand nature mm. yeah, that stefan harding and mm. the little man mm. looking at mm. the leaf and mm. going into yeah, deep yeah, time yeah, yeah, yeah. guy we could talk for hours we've been talking for an hour so I'm going to play you out uh, with uh, Cher singing Gershwin's number, <laughs> It Ain't Necessarily So. Not rightly so. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, 
thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Uh, we just heard Carl Sagan with Pale Blue Dot. Z. Or Triple Z. 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 Z.